Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. My name is Lucas Stuber, joined today by Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Lucas? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm wearing a very loud shirt today. I wish that our listeners could see the outrageous attire you have on right now. It's the most bold pineapple shirt I've ever seen. It, it's it's very garish. It's, it's really, really over the top as far as like these just fluorescent pineapples all over the shirt. I went to an AAC meetup actually in this shirt uh, some time ago, and um, I, I was trying to say something, but a lot of other folks were talking and somebody stood up and said, let the pineapple speak. And so this has now <laughs> become the, the thing. So I, I'm, I'm sorry, listeners, you haven't seen the uh, the shirt, but maybe I'll, I'll post it in the, in the Facebook yeah, may- Maybe we'll do a, a screenshot of this and <laughs> show everybody how ridiculous you look. It's the best shirt ever. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm really excited today. So we have Vicki Clark on the show, who's a, a really talented um, and proficient SLP and AAC expert. So I'm, I'm excited to hear from her. And one thing that um, came up in our conversation with her that's also been coming up uh, for me professionally and, you know, has been asked in the group is is basically how to manage vendor relationships, right? So, you know, I think we've all seen this situation where maybe, uh, or, or been in this situation, right, where you, you're really familiar with one app or one solution because there's a really strong presence of that company in your area, right? Whether that's Toby or PRC or Proloquo or whatever it might be. Um, and that's a challenge, right? Because we, we definitely, we don't want to have uh, everybody using the same device, right? But mm-hmm. on the flip side, there's uh, there's really not like blame to put there, right? Because I mean, it's hard to get trained in these things and it's hard to get access often. Yeah. And I, honestly, it's really been valuable to me to develop really strong relationships with the vendors in my area, because as you mentioned, they they know these systems. They know every detail that you could ever imagine. So if I have an issue, I have somebody to go to. And because I've you know worked at establishing these rapports, it's really quick to send a quick email and ask a question, um, set up a coffee date and go over programming aspects that you might not be as familiar with. So it definitely can be really beneficial, but I can understand how there's the opposite side of the coin and you can get too close for comfort. You know, so let's, let's look at some studies, right? So one case I guess I would have would be somebody who doesn't have access to all of the different solutions. Like say, say you're a school SLP, you have a new student move into the district is using like a Toby iGaze device and you don't have any experience with iGaze or with Toby, you know, of course, it's going to make a ton of sense to reach out to that company and, and get trained in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where the where the danger lies then is then that next time that you have an assessment for a similar situation, making sure that you aren't always falling back on the same tools just because those are what you're familiar with, right? Yeah. And I think this is something that I deal with a lot and I think about a lot in my practice because we all inevitably will fall back on the things that we know and the systems that we know best. And sometimes it's just kind of incidental, the systems that you learn as an SLP. You know, in my area, Proloquo is everywhere. So I would say that I know that system better than any other system only because I've worked with so many clients that have Proloquo. So I think it's important though to recognize as a clinician when you want to expand your horizons. So you don't want to just fall back on everything you know. There's so many apps out there. They're constantly updating them too. So just really having a pulse on what's out there, what's possible, especially if you have a child who isn't fitting very nicely into that system that you might know well. It's really our responsibility as clinicians to really search out other alternatives. And if that means, you know, reaching out to a, a different vendor and getting a demo set up, um, you know, that's kind of what it takes. And I, I just think that as AAC clinicians and specialists, we really need to prioritize making those relationships and knowing at least just a little bit 
about all of the options out there. Well, and so when you say responsibility, I mean, what, what we're really talking about here is ethics. ASHA actually has a very well-articulated set of ethics or professional guidelines. So let's, let's see what they have to say. So rule of ethics 3B says individuals shall avoid engaging in conflicts of interest whereby personal, financial, or other considerations have the potential to influence or compromise professional judgment and objectivity. So this is specifically speaking to, you know, these, these other obligations, right? So, so a good example is, um, you know, I personally obviously have worked in the past as a developer. I have a financial relationship with the company Avaz. And so in my practice when I'm working on a situation where a student could potentially be eligible, could use uh, that tool productively. You know, the, the sort of system that I put into place is that I always have a second SLP sort of double check my work, right? You know, go back through and make yeah. sure that I'm not biased in some way. Um, you know, I think this is a little different from other industries. Like we're not getting, I, I haven't had any champagne yacht tours given to me by like Toby. I'm still waiting actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that's in my future. Yeah, Toby, if you're listening, I'm sure we can we can work something out. But very very infrequently, I think would there actually be like a financial tie. But there is, um, you know, a sense of uh, you know a relationship. If you if it is so much easier to get a loaner from from that company, or if you're receiving copies of the apps for free or those things, um, I'm not at all saying that we shouldn't do those things. We need access to those tools, obviously. Um, but I think we need to be mindful about it, right? Make sure that it's something that we're considering um, when we're making those those recommendations. Is, you know, am I doing this because it's benefiting me or am I doing this because it's easy, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, you mentioned Avaz, Lucas, and I think it's a really good point. Um, you know, with that being said, you, with an app that you created, obviously you think it's, it's great. You know, you were part of that process. So I think it's okay to want to rec- recommend what you think is the best out there. And a lot of the, you know, the work that you put into that was because of where you're coming from as a clinician. Um, I love the second SLP kind of backup check. Uh, That's a really good strategy uh, (laughs) to just say like, hey, just like, you know, just want to make sure and not, you know, coming from an unbiased opinion. Um, I think that's a really really good. I don't know how practical it is. I'm trying to think of other SLPs that would, you know, be kind enough to, to do that backup for me. Oh, I, I, I chose one that really enjoys giving me grief. So I think that, okay, uh, perfect. I think she enjoys it. <laughs> yeah. I can barely like have 15 minute phone call check-ins with the other specialists that I know in my area. We're all like chickens with our heads cut off, busy <laughs> yeah. trying to do evaluations and, you know, consultations and all these things. So sure. it's hard. Well, and that, that's actually, that's a great segue because then here's another situation, right? Is the situation where you maybe are working in the schools in a, in a large district and they bought 200 codes to app X, right? And that's the solution that, um, you know, they would prefer to be used with all the students. And, you know, we obviously, we had an episode with Eric Anger where we, uh, you know, weighed um, potentially some of the, some of the pros of a situation like that. But again, looking at what Asha says, right? So rule of ethics 4B, individuals shall exercise independent professional judgment in recommending and providing professional services when an administrative mandate, referral source, or prescription prevents keeping the welfare of persons served paramount. So what they're saying there is essentially if this administrative mandate, for example, is uh, requiring a solution that's not the right uh, fit for the person that's served, that we have an ethical obligation to not abide by that, right? Um, that's challenging. Yeah, it's really challenging. And, you know, I wonder for for all those school-based SLPs, you know, they find themselves in this exact situation, right? It's like, we only get licenses for these specific apps. What do I do? Because these specific apps aren't working for this child. Um, you know, so uh, 
I think one solution is, you know, obviously going to your administrator and trying to get an exception to that rule, um, realizing, listen, I know that we have licenses with these companies, but, you know, here's the data. Here's why this is not a viable option. Um, I think it's our clinical responsibility to do those things and to be advocates for our clients in getting the best possible system for a child as we can. That's what the ethics is all about, right? Is that it's not just about, um, you know, adhering necessarily like verbatim to the to the code, although that's part of it, but it's also about advocating, um, you know, for your students when you see a situation that um, that you don't think is benefiting them, right? Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't reconcile with your ethics. So one one thing that I would suggest to people to, as a, sort of an easy way to. Um, you know, to start working through this is yes, go ahead and contact the vendors and contact all of them. You know, don't, don't just have that one relationship, but get in touch with the system where get in touch with AbleNet, get in touch with, with Toby, with PRC, with anybody that you want to work with. You shouldn't be afraid to send those emails. Like everybody's happy to get them where it's, we're, we're, a, we're a happy little family in the AAC world. And, you know, of course they obviously want people to learn about their products too. Um, but that's one way to sort of re- reduce the bias is by making sure that you're involved with everything. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I often have a lot of SLPs who I consult with, so they might not know a lot about AAC, and that's kind of my role is to teach them. And the number one question I get asked is, what trainings can I do? What What's out there? And, you know, I wish I could say that there's a ton out there. Um, there's not that much, but there is a lot of stuff. Um, and all of these companies, they do a really good job of supporting clinicians who want to learn more about their products, um, you know, and instead of watching, you know, YouTube videos on programming, you know, I really, like you said, Lucas, recommend just getting in touch with your local rep and they can show you everything. I don't know about you guys, but I am such a visual learner. So for me, what would take, you know, eons reading in a manual would take 10 minutes of me just playing around with, you know, a system and a device and asking the questions that I, that come up. Um, so it's not, it takes a little bit of extra effort to kind of have that meeting set up, but you know, at the end of it, I feel like, you know, the system a lot better. You have built a rapport with that rep. Um, so if you, anything comes up, you're, you're able to contact them and ask them a question or um, get some feedback. And a lot of them will, you know, join you in the assessment process, which is also awesome. I love having other clinicians input because it's so eye-opening. We don't, there's no one way to, you know, do therapy. There's no one way to do, you know, a great AAC assessment. I'm constantly amazed that when two SLPs are in the room, all of the ideas that are flowing and things that I would have never perceived, they pick up on. Um, So I just love that collaborative piece too, which is great. Yep. Perfect. So it's a free second set of eyes and who, yeah. who, who doesn't, is it, I don't know if anyone listening has enough time on their hands that they just have, you know, free people everywhere to help them out. Right. Like, I don't, I don't. I know. I know. I have a, I have a student intern right now and she's fantastic. And I'm like, how am I ever going to go back to therapy by myself? <laughs> how am I ever going to like not have that extra set of hands? That's like, you know, doing anything I might need in the middle of my sessions. It's going to be, it's going to be a rough transition. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Poor you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Poor, poor me. In any event, I think that it's, um, I, I think it's important to, to think about all this stuff. I also think that it's important to make sure that you're taking advantage of every tool that you have at your disposal to serve your students. Right. And I, I can tell you that, um, you know, there, there are plenty of situations, especially in the, the world of like eye gaze and, and alternative access where I would not have been as successful working with students if I didn't leverage the relationships that I have with vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I encourage folks to go out and do that. And I, I tell you, you know, 
this from an ethical standpoint, that's all on their mind too. I mean, I, I've never, I haven't, I haven't encountered a situation a where um, you know someone in a vendor or even a developer situation is really thinks that their solution is going to be 100% perfect all the time, right? I mean, they'll work with you. Absolutely, and I think that you know we're all we're in a helping profession, and anybody who's you know a part of AAC that I've come into contact with, they just want what's best for the child. And, you know, if that's their product, great. If it's not, they'll be the first ones to say like, you know, trial a few and see what happens. Um, so I, I agree. I haven't had any situations where, you know, somebody was really pressing me to recommend their specific product. Um, they just, they're really open for the most part in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think anybody really gets into this work in any capacity in a non-loving way, right? I haven't met exactly. any um, greedy millionaire speech pathologists or, no. but again, Toby, champagne yacht, come on. Yeah. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for my invite. <laughs> well, we want to hear what you guys think. So feel free to, to shoot us an email at tech at speechscience.org. Find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a Talking With Tech group uh, that's that's well active as well as a page. Um, and then, of course, Instagram, Twitter, all those places. We're, we're, we're pretty, I'm pretty glued to my phone. I don't know about you, Rachel, but I'm, I'm bad with the social media. I'm really trying to put some distance between my phone and I because um, it's such a time suck. I'm like, oh, man, like here am I on this like you know, funnel down the Facebook lane and it's just, it's, it's hard. So I've been, I've been setting some boundaries with my cell phone. Um, but I do love social media, so you'll, you'll often be able to find me there. <laughs> um, that's an actual reply. But, uh, but please, do let us know what you think. Um, I know this is, uh, uh, you, I wouldn't say a super controversial topic, but it's something that definitely comes up. So we're curious um, how you all have found solutions in your own practice. But all that said, we're really excited to, to listen to Vicki Clark, so we'll go ahead and share that with you starting now. Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech, part of the Speech Science Network. I am, as always, joined by my friend, Rachel Madel. How are you today? Fantastic. And I'm super excited today to be joined also by Vicki Clark. How are you? I'm awesome. Where are you located? Um, I am outside of Atlanta. You know, Vicki, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what brought you into the field and uh, what you're doing now. So I'm a speech language pathologist by training, but um, I've specialized in augmentative communication for my entire career. I got into it um, in my second semester of graduate school. I uh, got to be on an AAC evaluation team at the hospital um, at UNC Carolina and got um, hooked on augmentative communication at that point. That was 1989, so it was a few years ago. Um, and I've been specializing in Augcom ever since. I worked in the schools when I first started, and then I moved to Georgia, and I have been in private practice um, by myself for a while, and now I have a, a practice dynamic therapy associates. I have four full-time therapists and three part-time therapists and several assistants, and we do private uh, clinic-based evaluation and treatment, um, implementation with families. And then my job right now is um, a division of our company called DTA Schools. And I spend about 80% of my working life out um, in con con on contracts with our six school districts providing augmentative communication services. So we do student-based evaluation. Um, we do training for staff, uh, for therapists and teachers. We help the school system facilitate getting communication devices funded for the individual students. Uh, we create materials. So that's kind of taking up all my professional life at this point. 
great. So do you do any in-home work as well, or is it all school-based? We are all, I'm all school-based right now. And my therapist, we do everything in clinic right now, just for, from a funding perspective, we can't really afford to go out into school. So we're not doing any home, I mean, into homes. So we're not doing any home-based services. Got it. Got it. I, this, that's similar to what I've done before is contract directly with mm-hmm. school districts and it can be more lucrative. And the other thing I found, and I don't know if this is true for you, but um, I, I really like uh, working with, with students, I guess, in situ, if that makes any sense, you know, in their actual environment where they interact with peers. Um, do you feel like that's something that's uh, beneficial for them? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I've, I worked in private practice for so long um, and I had my students for an hour a week. And, you know, what happens in the therapy room is not really what makes the big difference in terms of kids learning how to communicate. So, you know, you work with families and, and get them on board and help them with implementation. But then these kids are out in the, their classrooms for over 30 hours a week. So I feel like that by being able to get out into the schools, if I can make an impact there, if I can train these teachers and pair pros so that kids have access to communication all day, um, that's going to be significantly more impactful than anything that I can do in, in an hour in my therapy room. I am always kind of preaching that message. I'm also in private practice and I specialize in AAC and that's our role is to teach these caregivers what to do because we can only be there at most a few hours a week. And oftentimes I don't even get to see the kids that I work with that often. So right. I, I completely agree. Going off of that, what do you find is the biggest roadblock that you're finding when you're trying to teach in the schools? Really, I think it is getting the teachers to give me the time that's needed to do really good training and convincing them to take the time to do the implementation planning that they need to do in order to make it successful in their classrooms. So I think that time is an issue or the perception of lack of time is probably the biggest issue. So I think part of what I have to do is um, I have to do a good sales job with the adults around the child, um, convincing them of the importance of what we're doing so that they will prioritize it so that then they'll have time to work on it with me. And I think you bring up such an excellent point it's the perception of yes. lack of time. I think that it's this idea that I have no time. I can't possibly add anything else. And what I try to teach to the teachers that I'm working with is, you know, sure, there's some upfront planning that goes involved, but this is something that if we plan into these activities that a lot of teachers use from year to year, you already have the, the supports in place. So it's really just a little bit of upfront work that doesn't take nearly as much time as you might think it does, especially when you kind of get into a rhythm. Um, right. And then the more you do it, the less planning it takes, right? That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, I think that I, I was thinking about this a lot over the past year, you know, why, why do I struggle with trying to get everybody on board? You know, why, mm-hmm. why am I not able to, to convince them that augmentative communication is super important. And I had the realization at some point back in the spring this year, I thought, you know, the issue is really not that we're not prioritizing augmentative communication in our classrooms. The issue really is that we're not prioritizing communication, period. Right. So not right. just for our non-speaking students, but all of our students, this idea and really not focusing on the fact of how important communication is. And so I think what happens is that when I come in, I get lumped into the same category as, well, we got to teach science and we have to teach social studies and we have to teach language and we have to teach all of these other goals. Um, and 
what I'm coming in there with Ogcom, it's just one more piece that they have to teach. And so I've really, I've changed my approach to training with our staff now where we start our meeting. I mean, we start our year off this year um, with a, I, I kind of tongue in cheek called it my come to Jesus meeting. And we talk about why are we even discussing communication for our students and, you know, how, what we're required to do in the school district in terms of um, legally what we're required to, to provide as far as communication supports are concerned. Um, and then how much that, that uh, communication impacts every single thing else that they're teaching. You know, who cares if you know science and social studies, if you understand all, everything there is to understand about about matter and Abraham Lincoln and electricity, if you can't communicate those things. Right, right. You know? And so that's, a, had, I think, yeah, I think a lot about, about ADLs, right? Like access to activities of daily living. That's, that's, that's one of my biggest priorities, especially as kids are aging out of the school system, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry to have interrupted, but you reminded me of something that I really like that you might too, that I, I, I used to always harp in conference presentations on this idea that uh, AAC intervention is just language intervention, Yes. right? And that people shouldn't, um, you know, be afraid of it because a lot of yes. the same principles apply, you know, it's mm-hmm. what you're doing in other situations. And then recently I did an interview with Melanie Freed Oaken, um, mm-hmm. who's up at Oregon State Health Science University. Yep. And she put it a wonderful way. She said that, it's not actually language intervention, that it's communication intervention. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I really like thinking about it that way, right? Because it's in many ways, um, communication or effective communication is modality independent, right? Yes, um, yes, absolutely. So, I've, I've been separating that out a lot when, because when, we have a lot of, a lot of our, we look, I work with a lot of students with autism and um, we have ABA specialists working with us a lot and, um, and we kind of have that discussion around functional communication training and discrete trial training. And so what we've been talking about is that there's a, dis- there's a difference between language and articulation, how you speak, and the purpose. And that the purpose of all, those are the tools we use to communicate, right? So, you know, trying to, trying to, to think through, it doesn't really matter, you know, all of those tools, whether you're doing AAC or you're, you're speaking or you're writing or typing. Um, yeah, or gestures. Are, or gestures or, yeah. or facial expression all mm-hmm. of those those techniques are just uh, those are the tools we use to get to the main point which is communication to be able to functionally interact mm-hmm. how, how do you feel about about the encroachment of ABA uh, <laughs> I mean that's a loaded question but uh, you know you don't have to answer it just going straight to the controversy <laughs> aren't you <laughs> I am or even OT uh, you know I mean ABA is pervasive in California and Oregon and Washington and mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know how to feel well. about it yet because there are well, elements you, of AAC intervention that do lend themselves well to DTTs, right? To discrete trial training, but not everything. I've had different opinions about um, what's happening with ABA and speech and language. And I know that there's a lot of um, controversy um, and argument between the two fields, but I really, I've also, I've worked with ABA specialists that I thought were phenomenal. Um, and so I feel like that there's a lot of value there. And I, I think it's probably not an either or situation in terms of what is valuable to our students. Um, but when I'm, I've been, you know, working with, with the ABA therapists about um, really thinking about, um, you know, what they're targeting. And I, th- I think like when we were talking about that distinction between language and communication, that's how I sort of address this ABA speech therapy thing. I feel like that 
when we're sitting down in discrete trial training, what we're teaching is vocabulary. We're mm-hmm. not teaching functional communication. We're teaching vocabulary. We're teaching language, pieces of language, right? So is there value in discrete trial training? Well, I think there is for some of our students who really, really struggle with that basic vocabulary. Now, I'm a big, I'm personally a big picture person. So I don't, I don't, I don't hang out too long in that discrete trial land. I do understand why there's value in it. Um, now, I, to me, the perfect combination is um, if a child needs discrete trial training in order to focus and filter and learn language and vocabulary, that's great. And then we have to also pair it with functional communication teaching. Right. So we have to, and, and I think that the, some of the value for our ABA specialists is that if you get an ABA specialist working with you for functional communication teaching, they are amazing. They can be amazing at helping us to um, take that functional communication, that uh, activity, and structure it in a way that this, the student with autism can understand it very well. So I feel like that, there, that if you've got a skilled ABA specialist and a skilled OGCOM specialist working together, that's probably the best of both worlds. Where we have problems is when we have less than skilled speech pathologists and less than skilled ABA specialists, and then we get into a whole big mess. Yeah. And I also think that you just hit the nail right on the head. It's all about the collaboration. If we can just kind of come together and utilize the resources that we have and the training that we have, you know, and compromise in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think that's the key because as you mentioned, there is a place for some of that discrete trial training. Um, Another thing that, because I work very closely with ABA teams and I, I, I value them because they have the hours, right? Like they have the 30 to 40 hours a week. So if I can get them on board, it's just, it's, it's such a win for, you know, device implementation. So I am always trying to, you know, work with them, collaborate with them and know that at the end of the day, what they're doing is not speech therapy. So I have to kind of let go of some of the things that I might do differently. But as long as we have a roadmap of where we're going and how to make communication functional instead of just that discrete trial training, you know, I've had a lot of success. So I don't think we need to be at war the way that we we sometimes kind of get into our speech therapy versus ABA disagreements. But it, if you can collaborate, I think it's a it's a win win. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think it's an, I think it's nice that we have, you know, you talked about all the hours that ABA has now available, which is pretty amazing. And I would, I would like us to do a better job in our profession of um, increasing our funding. Right. But, Wouldn't that be great? Also, um, but still it gives us, you know, you're right. If you can get an ABA specialist on board and they're helping implement what we're recommending and you can do that 25 hours a week, that's great. And yeah. then we also need to be talking to them about how in the world they got that kind of funding. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> well, and some of them vary state by state. You know, I know that uh, Autism Speaks, for example, did a great job with their attorneys of, um, you know, pushing ABA in a variety of states. But, yep. there, you know, when you spoke to this, I, I one thing that I, I talk about a lot is that SLPs, when they're coming out of grad school, their scope of practice is often very broad, but very shallow, right? You yes. know, mm-hmm. like I work a lot with AAC. I'm not about to go do a modified barium swallow. That, that, oh. It's within my scope of practice, but it's not within my ethics. 
No, right? no, no. Yep. You know, but ABA, uh, and I'm sure I'll get, a, you know, a mean email about this one, but, um, you know, I feel like it's very narrow, but deep. Like what you said, speech pathologists, I think a lot of times in our school districts are general practitioners. So they have to know a little bit of everything. Right. Um, I am not a general practitioner at all. I mean, I don't know what, if you come to me with, with an issue with fluency or voice, forget it. I mean, I don't remember that stuff at all. Yeah. God help me if I had to do a barium swallow, I would not know what to do with that. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think that probably our ABA therapists really line up better in terms of the depth of knowledge with specific AAC specialists, because we're, we have a very in-depth knowledge of this teeny tiny piece of our practice. So um, that's a good combination. I think probably when we have general practitioner speech pathologists working with ABA specialists that we may get into more difficulty in that scenario than we do when we had the AAC specialist and the ABA therapist together, potentially. Really excellent point that I never, ever thought about, Vicki. That makes so much sense to me that we kind of, a general practitioner. Because the ABA does so many different things, right? I mean, they're working on all types of of skills and across every discipline, it feels like, Um, you know, whether it's sensory regulation or activities of daily living or you know, you name it, they're kind of working on all those things. So, and I found that when I come in as, you know, a specialist with a very specific purpose, they're very willing to collaborate, you know? And I think that that, that's such a interesting thought. I've never thought of that, but that makes so much sense. Well, it's, it's like, you you know, we said earlier, it's kind of a little controversial subject. And so I like to think about these things, you know, (laughs) I don't want people, I want people to like me. I don't want people to be mad at me, you know? I know I'm the same way. (laughs) So speaking of controversy, um, you're somebody that, you know, has a lot of experience uh, in this field. Are there um, certain apps or devices or even methodological approaches that you like more than others? Well, so I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because um, I, I tend to, um, I get lumped in um, with one particular company a lot of times because I've spent a lot of time working with, um, with their devices and with, um, I think with their, their uh, educational team. Um, But I don't actually have a device or an app that I think is better for all students um, than any other one. So I would say that I I think it's really important for us to have comprehensive communication um, apps and software programs available to our students. And by that, I mean, um, I I want our devices to have all the different tools that our students need to communicate. So I want our devices to have core vocabulary. I feel like that's really super important. And I want our devices to have a keyboard because we know our students need to learn. Um, they need to improve their literacy skills. We know that that's an issue with AAC users. So we need to have access to a keyboard. Um, I think in terms of rate enhancement, it's very helpful to have access access to some topic-based um, stored phrases on our device. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of our companies do that with context-based messaging, um, and we have others that have social-based um, pre-programmed phrases. Yeah, like quick fires sort of things. Yeah, like, like quick fires, quick messages, um, social messages. Um, so I really feel like we need to have all of those things. I kind of want it all. Um, so devices that I prefer are devices that have all of that or apps that I prefer have all of that. I want the community. I want 
core. I want keyboard. I want topics and phrases and social messaging. I want every piece of that. And so really when it comes down to picking which one of those I'm, 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 um, I go with for a particular student, it really comes down to what is their easiest form of communication? Like what do they need the most? And what, what, um, you know, what are, what are the features that they require in a system? So if I have a student that's really struggling with social interaction um, and, you know, maybe, you know, I have, I had a young, a young boy I was doing a report on today that I evaluated and he's a very, he wants to be very social, but he really struggles with understanding, you know, what are appropriate, Appropriate things that I can say in these different environments, right? And he also is a young man who has echolalia. So he, when you give him appropriate statements to choose from, he can pick them. So this little guy, I feel like it's beneficial for him to have topic-based, some top, some topic-based instruction, I mean, not instruction, topic-based pages and social messaging pre-prepared for him so he can quickly access and choose appropriate social messaging, right? Um, However, that kiddo also needs core vocabulary, needs to be able to produce generative language, right? So he's got to have a device that has all of this, but because I definitely want that topic-based instruction, that young man, I went towards a Toby Donabox device. Now, I have another young lady that I wrote a report for yesterday um, who has difficulty with, um, she has difficulty with visual processing. So when I give her a communication device, it's hard for her to look across the whole grid and scan the choices that she has and find what she wants to communicate. She really uses uh, her motor planning more than she uses visual access. So I need a device that messages don't move around. And that's really the most predominant important thing for this young lady. So for this child, we are going with an, with an accent all day long because the, on mm-hmm. the PRC accent devices, motor planning is a huge component. So I know that I can teach her a motor plan at a 15 location. And when we move to 28, it's going to make sense. They're going to be about in the same position, you know, and we can, we can build her language that way. So I think she still needs some social messaging. So we'll probably add some social messaging in for her, but for her, it made more sense to me to go towards an accent device. So I don't, I don't have favorites. Now, I, will, I think that, you know, to make a short answer painfully long, I think that early on in my career in, in private practice, we had a great number of emergent communicators come into our practice. Um, and those are kiddos who their communication was so significantly impacted that it made sense to their parents to pull them out of school and bring them to speech therapy, right? Yeah. So... Um, in early on, you know, the, some of those emergent communicators, some of the high level core vocabulary and multi-meaning icons are challenging for those emergent communicators. So I tended probably towards more systems that, um, you know, n- not as many systems that had that multi-meaning icon base and core base because they were emergent communicators. As I've gotten out into the school districts now, it's much more balanced for me because I have more students who have um, kind of a broader range of needs, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So 
going back to those emergent communicators, is there a system? I mean, obviously we want to support core vocabulary for down the line because you want a system that grows with a child. Yes. Are there any specific systems that you feel like are really good starting off points for emergent communicators? So that's an interesting question because I think I would have answered that differently a couple of years ago than I do right now. Yeah. Um, you know, our emergent communicators, I think when they're very, they're really at the very early stages of learning, learning vocabulary, their kiddos, you know, the, the first, your first 10 words are not often core vocabulary words, right? right. They're just not. Um, they're not. They tend to be specific words, right? So we want to make sure that our emergent, and they're also, those are the motivating words for them too. So, you know, at our merchant users, at first we're trying to get access, you know, we're requesting things that we're high, really motivated right. by. Um, so we want to make sure we have access to those, those, some of that fringe vocabulary. Um, you know, I think that um, I had better access to that in the past when I was using my Toby Donovox and my Saltillo products um, mm-hmm. than I felt that I did with, with my PRC and my Accent products. However, um, you know, PRC, the Accent now, the, this latest update, update that they did, um, they're giving us a lot easier access to that French vocabulary um, from the get-go. Um, it's, it's right there on the main page where we can get, access, we can get to it for our students. So um, I feel like now I can use those systems more for kids who are emer- or people who are emergent communicators than I used to be able to. Um, and so now when I'm making the decision, um, it's not as much about whether you're e- an emergent communicator or not, and more about, you know, do you need, you know, like that visual planning business, that was, that's, a, that's an important piece, you know, is core vocabulary the most important piece of your instruction? Um, do you need access and support for social messaging? You know, I mean, you know, do you need, do you need supports for um, daily, you know, communication around activities of daily living? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, certainly Toby Donovox has got that really going very much for it, you know? So, you know, it's, it's not really as much like you look for, it used to be for me about emergent communicators versus more context dependent, independent communicators. And now it's really not that way anymore. At what level, I guess, do you decide um, to transition a student from a, a low-tech or a mid-tech device to a high-tech device? Okay, so I'm not a huge fan of low-tech and mid-tech devices, to be honest with you. Oh, I'm not either until it becomes a discus. <laughs> that's, that's my fear. <laughs> Right. I, I, you know, I, I struggle with low tech and mid tech because um, it doesn't give me access to comprehensive language. So I very, very rarely would recommend a light tech or, or, or low tech or mid tech system. Um, I tend to recommend those more for, um, for students in classrooms for participation. So, you know, we may have a, we may have a communication device that's set up for a particular cooking activity that we're using or a storybook that we're reading. And are Um, are you thinking of like, like pod in in that situation or? Well, see, I think pod, okay, pod's sort of a different little, different discussion, I think, because, you know, pod is like, when I think light tech, low tech, I'm thinking like minimal access to vocabulary, you know, one page per, you know, per device. Um, and pod books are comprehensive language tools. So I, I, I consider pod to be, I mean, it's maybe I shouldn't say it's a high tech system, but it kind of is a high tech sort of 
vocabulary organization. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't even, I don't even think about that the same way as I do, um, as I do some of the, I don't think it belongs in the same category. Um, now, if you're asking me, when would I move from like a pod book or a comprehensive communication book into a high tech system? That to me is a different question. Um, and I, oh, I think it's a hard question because it, you know, I think it really gets down to independence of communication, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, as, as people want to become, be more independent, um, you know, I think a high tech system that, you know, voice output system is, you know, obviously more independent than a pod book is. Um, but a pod book also takes away all of those access challenges, you know, for kids so that they can communicate, you know, so I don't, I don't think there's a good single answer to that question. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, it was kind of a trick question. It was, it was, a trap. <laughs> so I was, I just was curious what you would say there. And, and I know I there pass? is, um, you, totally you, did. you passed it. <laughs> I, I know that there is a pod app now as well, but I think that, um, you know, it, it really mimics, um, you know, the flipbook piece. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, for now, sure. how about, um, students that are medically complex? Do you work with eye gaze systems, that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I work with a lot of kids who are eye gaze users. Um, we work with kids who are scanners, auditory scanners. Sure. Does that impact what you do in terms of uh, vocabulary access? Uh, no, I still have the same desire for those kids that I do for everybody else. I want them to have core vocabulary and I want them to have their French vocabulary and motivating things that, for them. I want them to have phrases and social interaction and I want them to have access to literacy. So no other than then it can be a little bit more challenging to figure out how to do that. You yeah, know? sure. Well, so and that's something I, can, I see in the schools a lot is is the limited vocabulary piece. That's why I was curious. Yeah, but that kind of stinks because if you have a, if you're, you know, if your issue really is predominantly that you have an access problem and you have all this to say in your little brain and you have an access problem and people start giving you four choices, that is horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, that's almost even worse than if you if you have a, a language, you know, a language impairment. I, I think it's really important to get to significant vocabulary um, and tools for those kids. And so I definitely go high tech with those kids. I go to eye gaze really quickly. And if they cannot use eye gaze because of visual issues, um, you know, we do, we go to auditory scanning pretty quickly for those kids. And visual issues, you mean um, impaired vision, just yeah, yeah. Like, like nystagmus or chorea even? Yeah, if for, for whatever reason that they cannot access an eye gaze device, you know, if, if you can access an eye gaze device, I'm going to go that direction all day long over a scanning system because of right. rate, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I... You know, I have students who struggle with cortical visual impairment and then other, you know, more, you know, acuity issues with, with vision. Um, so when I have our kiddos who have um, cortical visual impairment, depending on the level of that, that may um, make us lean away from eye gaze. Although I will say I have quite a few students with cortical visual impairment who use eye gaze for communication. You know, we get emails all the time when we get people asking us, uh, you know, how how do you go about um, starting a private practice uh, focused on AT? If you had one piece of advice, what do you think it would be? 
first of all, you got to know what you're doing. That's the first thing. <laughs> that helps. Yes. <laughs> so make sure you know what you're doing. I mean, I think that educating yourself is important. So, you know, spending time learning in another setting is probably important before you start your own private practice. Um, but then, you know, I think having making sure you have access to the materials that, that you need. So, I mean, so having I have relationships with um, the different device manufacturers. I have relationships with app developers so that I can access the materials I need for evaluation and for um, for therapy, ongoing therapy with my students. So, I think that those are helpful things to have. Um, uh, and you know. Honestly, it's pretty easy to get started because there's not enough people who specialize in augmentative communication. So once people hear you're out there and you know a little something about it, I mean, I think it, it people come. I've never had problems with a waiting list. At all. Let's just say that. Yeah, right. I right. know. Yeah, not enough out of us out there. No, there's not. <laughs> Uh, Vicky, do you, do you have materials on YouTube or anything like that? Um, we do have, so we're all over, I'm all over social media um, just because I, I, I really believe that's where everybody, that's where our families are and you know, now even our teachers and professionals are out on social media. So um, under, um, our name is AAC Chicks on um, Instagram and Twitter. Um, and also if you go over to YouTube, you can look up AAC Chicks on YouTube as well. I don't do a lot on YouTube. YouTube, um, but there are some videos of there. Are a lot of videos of, of user people using communication systems, so that's kind of cool. Like I take kids there so they can see other students using devices. Um, Perfect. So, yeah. Great. Um, and I guess probably as far as getting materials too, the other thing that we should say is that you know I do that assessment series on Practical AAC their yeah. um, their website, and I have lots and lots of protocols that are available that are um, within those those um, blog posts that people can download and use for free too. And we can link we can link to that in the show notes because they are absolutely fantastic. I have read a, almost all of your articles, Vicky, oh, and you. they're just so comprehensive. And for anybody who's you know feeling a little daunted by the evaluation process and the assessment for AAC, you're just getting into it. They're such a great resource. So I oh, would thank you so recommend. much. Yeah, fantastic. It's been so useful, and um, it's been so useful to me. And and it's something that doesn't you know take six hours to do <laughs> like right, right. Certain other assessments. Well, once again, thanks for your time. Uh, again, this was Vicki Clark. My name is Lucas Tuber, always uh, with my friend Rachel Madel uh, for talking with tech presented by Speech Science. Stay tuned for the next episode. We're looking forward to, to sharing more with you guys. Thanks, guys. Well, welcome back once again to Talking with Tech. Um, thanks so much to Vicki Clark for joining us. I thought that was a fantastic interview. Yeah, she's so fantastic. And especially towards the end, I feel like she's really practical in all of her suggestions. And these are the real clinical decisions that we come across in our practice. So it was really nice to hear her perspective. Well, we want to hear from you. So drop us a line at tech at speechscience.org or find us on Facebook, either the, the page or the, the group talking with tech, as well as the, the Twitters and the Instas and the Pinstas. I think we're, we're pretty much everywhere, everywhere out there. So we're, we're, we're able to be found. We would love to hear from you um, as well tomorrow. So if you're listening to this on Sunday, so Monday evening this coming week, we're doing a free live webinar, Rachel, Chris and I, um, about new AAC apps and developments in the app world. That's at six o'clock PM Pacific through exception. Ed. Um, we'll have that information up on the Facebook as well. Uh, we'd love for you to join us. And if you guys haven't already, please go to iTunes and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a review and tell us what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. 
Well, once again, for Talking With Tech, this is Lucas Tuber joined by Rachel Madel. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.